God's word. Amen. And turn with me to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, where today we'll be studying verses 16 and 17. So just two verses. Now, this is not a departure from our series on Habakkuk. This is very much a part of it. If you look down there in verse 17, the very last words that Paul quotes there are from the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, from chapter 2, verse 4, he says, The righteous shall live by faith. Last week, we looked at that little text in the context of both Habakkuk and the book of Hebrews, who also quotes it. We looked at it in terms of, of persevering in faith in the midst of suffering and how important that is. Hebrews 10 doesn't mix doesn't mince words when it comes to this, that a faith that does not persevere is not a saving faith. It simply isn't. A saving faith will persevere. You will live by faith through the hard times and through the good times. And that's very much the context of Habakkuk as well. Habakkuk, the people, have the, the, the righteous among Israel have been suffering under the hands of the unjust Israelites. But now things are going to get worse somewhere down the line when the Babylonians come and are far more unjust than the Israelites have been. And Habakkuk is saying, well, what do we do? What do I do in response to this? Like, I, I, God, I know your word tells me that you're just, but this doesn't seem just. What do I, how do I respond to that? And the answer of God in, in Habakkuk chapter 2 is very simple. The righteous shall live by faith. But now the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 is going to take that text and rather than using it to apply to our perseverance and suffering, He's going to use it to apply to our salvation, and particularly what role faith plays in our attaining the righteousness and the sacrificial atonement purchased to us, purchased for us by Jesus Christ. What does faith have to do with our salvation? Now, before I read God's holy, inerrant, inspired word, let us go to Him in prayer. Ask that He would. Bring his blessing to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much that you have not left us in darkness, that you have given us the light of your word. Father, we pray that we would be able to walk by it, that we would be able to live by it, that we would be able to believe it. We pray that it would be written upon our hearts. Father, this is not something a natural man can just do. To do this, Father, we need your spirit. We need your power. So, Father, we ask you this morning that you would do just that. Make this word a living word that takes up residence within our hearts so that we can believe, within our minds so that we can believe. Father, may we, may we walk by the light of your word this morning and forever. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You'll hear now the word of God from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jews first and also the Greeks. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. 
It's not doing so good. There might be a few water breaks today. So, what is the gospel? That is a important question. And unfortunately, if you have been in church, if you have been a part of God's covenant community for a long time, it can be a question that seems so easy that we really kind of lose sight of the importance of it. But you see, there's really not a question that could ever be asked of anyone, then what is the gospel? When I was teaching in Huntsville, I used to start every school year, I'd hand out a little questionnaire with some just kind of fun questions like favorite food and stuff like that. But the last question, really the only one that I really cared about, was that. What is the gospel? What do you think that means? What do you, uh, what do you think that is? And the responses that I got were really some variation of really two things. Well, let's say three things. Some of them did really good, but they were in the minority. The majority of the responses were either something that would connect it to our works, to our obedience. It, it would be something like when the good news is that we follow God's word and do what pleases him. That's that word, do. And so, so, so the good news is, Something that something that we do. And then the other, I don't want to say it's a wrong response. They might have they might have meant something right by it, but the wording is kind of strange. It would be something like believe in God. Well, once again, belief, faith, as we will see today, does play a part in our salvation. But to say that the good news is our believing, once again, that puts the emphasis on something that I do. And then you can also kind of parse it out. What do you mean believe in God? Just believe that he exists. The demons in hell believe that God exists. And they're demons. So if we're believing, what exactly is it that we're believing in? What actually is the gospel? As I mentioned before, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, he is using that in, in reference to how, a, how, a, how a, a, a believer lives his life in the presence of suffering, in the presence of evil. But in Galatians 3, where Paul also uses it, he uses it to show us that if God reserved the word righteous only for those who keep the law, then none of us would ever, ever, ever be deemed to be righteous. None of us would ever be deemed to be, to, to be righteous. Well, this morning in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul is going to make sure that we understand what the gospel is inside and out and what role faith plays in that. So I want us to study this all-important question in three admittedly lopsided points. I say lopsided because point one is going to take the majority of this sermon. Uh, so when we get to the end of one, they're like, man, this has been going on for a while and I have five minutes left. That's about how long the last two are going to take. The first point is going to take up the majority of this sermon. Point one, what is the content of the gospel? What is the content of the gospel? Secondly, what is the power of the gospel? And then thirdly, how do we come to possess the gospel? The content of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the possession of the gospel.
Let's begin with the content here. So here in the very first verse, verse 16, Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so you know, anytime you see the word it in this passage, everything is referencing back to the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It reveals the righteousness of God. And so these are pretty important things. It's the power of God and it is the revelation of God. And so if we come to this text and have a misunderstanding of the gospel or maybe have no idea what the gospel is, we might be in a pretty big, pretty big bit of trouble. I mean, this is an important thing. Almost everything is hinging on this. And in fact, in Romans, this is really the theme statement of the entire book of Romans. Probably the most important book in your Bible. That always feels kind of weird to kind of like say, oh, the most important book of the Bible. They're all inspired. But there's not a place in the Bible that I think you can go to where you have a more, a more solid and more systematic teaching on what it is that the Christian believes and what it is that the Christian practices. And for him to base it all upon these two verses in Habakkuk 2.4 tells us that we need to take our time on this. And we really need to understand what the gospel is. What is the it of the gospel? So to do this, I want us to break down the word gospel. So one thing that I usually shy away from doing in sermons is highlighting the Greek. You don't really care about the Greek. So if I ever do it, it must be pretty important to break that rule. I'm breaking the rule actually a couple times today. I'm going to break that rule first of all. The Greek word that is translated as gospel here is the word euangelion. It is a compound word. It combines two Greek words. The first word, you, is good. And the second word, gelion, is news. Good news. Now, I don't really have to explain much what good means, the opposite of bad. Whenever you receive good news, it's something that is going to be uh, going to bring you joy. It's going to bring you relief. It's going to bring you comfort. It's going to bring you healing. Something like that. It's not going to destroy. It's going to build. But I do want to focus in on news. And so when you come to the end of the day and you, you turn on the news, what is it that you're hoping to learn? Well, you're hoping to learn what's happened. What is going on in the world? What happened in the world today? What did I miss when I was at work? What's happening? What happened? When Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that it reveals the righteousness of God, he is saying something happened that is the power of God unto salvation. Something happened that revealed the righteousness of God. Now comes the all-important question, and this gets us to what the gospel is. What happened? When we ask what is the gospel, we're asking what happened that is such good news? And here's the thing. The answer to that question is kind of a long story because it unfolds over thousands of, of years. It begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when the spirit is hovering over the, the chaotic, chaotic formless void of the pre-creation state. And then God sees this chaos and he begins to speak into it. He says, let there be light. He separates the light from the day. He creates the heavens. He creates the earth. He begins to fill the heavens and the earth with stars, the moon, the sun, fish, birds of the air, and then the creatures of the earth. But on the sixth day, 
there's just something missing. Who is going to exercise dominion over these things? And so what's one of the most fascinating things about Genesis 1, when you go to that creation account, one thing that you'll notice is whenever God is going to create something, let's just say the moon and the stars, he speaks into the nothingness. He speaks into the void. But when on the sixth day, he stops speaking to the void. He stops speaking to the chaos. And he begins to speak to himself. He says to himself, let us create man in our own image. And so he creates man. He creates them male and female. Adam and Eve, that they might exercise this dominion, that they might be made in his image and declare his glory and goodness to all of the creation. But that's not what they did, is it? For they sin. They fell short of the glory of God. And they plunged themselves, their posterity, and all of creation, all the heavens and the earth, into a state of sin, misery, and death. Death prevails from the fall until now. Darkness, suffering, pain, even the creation itself cries out in groanings because of what they have done. And what is the cause of the sin and the cause of this misery? It is this. It is the barrier, the wall that sin puts between God and his creation. God and the crown jewel of his creation, man and woman. This is the cause of this sin and misery. And now, so now there's this dividing wall. And the question comes, how in the world are they going to get over it? How is this wall going to be overcome? How are Adam and Eve and all the children after them going to be reconciled with this sovereign and holy, holy God who cannot deal in sin, cannot deal with sinners? How is this going to happen? Later on, you'll read about the Tower of Babel and how a group of people say, We'll ride, we'll bring ourselves up to God. We'll hurdle the wall ourselves. And then what happens? They become idolatrous. They become wicked. And God curses them. They're trying, they're seeking God and God curses them. Sinners cannot enter into his presence. And then you read further, you get into the book of Exodus and you're introduced to God's servant Moses. And through Moses, God gives them the law. He gives them the commands and gives them the promises of immense blessings if they only obey the law. But something comes with those blessings. Curses. Curse after curse after curse. Let me read a couple of passages for you. Deuteronomy 27, 26, quoted by Paul in Galatians 2. Curse be everyone who does not confirm these commandments by doing them. Well, how many do I have to do? Do I have to do most of them? Maybe I have to do all of them, but maybe not all the time. Surely God understands when I, when I slip up and, and, and when I fail. Surely he understands that. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 19. 
But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all, all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all the curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, cursed shall, you, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your gourd, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed you shall be when you come out. That's just four little verses. That goes on for about a chapter and a half. The picture there is this as God as this warrior king who isn't just coming out, isn't just coming out after the, the super wicked. He's coming out to anyone who does not abide by every word in that book, both perpetually and perfectly. His arrows are drenched with blood. The dividing wall still exists. So what do we do? Are we just perpetually stuck in this, this state of sin and misery that Adam and Eve have plunged us into and that we add to continually day after day of our own lives? What are we going to do? The answer is we don't do anything. Man cannot ascend to God, but God can condescend to man. This is what God tells Eve right after the fall. I found this to be amazing that in chapter in Genesis chapter 3, you have the curse of the serpent, the curse of the woman, the curse of man, and the curse of all creation. But right there in the middle of it, in the middle of the curse, it's almost as God, he turns his attention away from the serpent and he, he's, he's like bringing Eve over close to him. He says, this is what's going to happen. Eve, I'm going to give you a child. And he is going to go to war with the serpent. And yes, he is going to be grievously wounded, but he will crush the serpent's head. He will crush it. It was a promise that he gave her. But what does she do with this promise? What does Adam do with this promise? Because yes, he gives them Cain and Abel, but Abel dies, and then he, he gives them he gives them Seth, and then Seth dies, and then Adam and Eve die. What do they do? They believe and they wait. Many, many centuries later, God calls a man out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, a man named Abraham. And he brings them into the land of Canaan. He shows them all. He shows, He takes them to a high mountain. He says, everything that you see, I will make yours. I will make you a father of many nations. I will make you a blessing of many nations through your offspring. You see what's happening here? This promise is taking on a form. It is form is of a child. It's of a person. It's a, it's a child of promise. But as Abraham ever see this child yes abraham has isaac but one thing that you'll notice if you go through genesis when you get to abraham everything seems to be pointing you toward isaac everything you're just waiting on isaac every minute of the way and then isaac's born and what happens nothing genesis says almost nothing about isaac other than him being blind and not a great father we don't know much about him it's a letdown why is it a letdown because that is not the child 
He was a shadow of a child. And shadows can tell you a lot about a person, tell you a lot about something, but it's not going to tell you everything about it. Then you come to the psalmist and the prophets, and they began to paint a, a more clear picture of what this child is going to be like. He is going to be a prophet. He is going to reveal God to people in a way that no one has ever been able to do. He is going to reveal God truly in spirit and in truth. He is going to be a priest, which means he's not just going to go and enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of bulls or goats or pigeons or whatever it might have been. He's going to go into the throne by his own blood. He is going to suffer. And by his wounds, many will be healed. And many will be called children of the living God. He will be the great high priest. And then they also say that he is going to be a king. Daniel 7 and 8 are so good on this. He is going to have dominion. And he is going to have reign, but not a dominion and reign that looks like the, the reign of David or looks like the reign of Nebuchadnezzar or whoever it might be. It is going to look like the reign of God. His reign is going to be so full and so sufficient that the nations will come to him and bow down and worship him. He's no mere king. This is a God king. The Persian kings thought themselves to be gods. They weren't. This is going to be the true God, King, worthy and deserving of all worship. But how is he going to be deserving of this worship? What's interesting is you get to the book of Malachi, and you get to the last page, and you turn in. When you turn in your Bible, you just open right up to the Gospel of Matthew. It took 400 years before anybody could do that. 400 years. There's all these psalms, there's all these prophets, there's all these paintings of this promised child, and then nothing. Silence echoes throughout the universe, echoes throughout the minds of God's people who are still doing what Eve did and still doing what Abraham did, believing and waiting. And then the silence is broken. A messenger of God comes to a young teenage girl from the tribe of Judah and says to her, you, the spirit will come over you. You will conceive a child. And then he gives her, he gives, then he gives her the title of, these, of, of this child. He shall be called son of the most high God. Most high God, that's like, whenever that word is used, it's always in reference to, you have all these other gods of the nations, most high. These other gods are nothing. He will be called the son of the most high God. He will be called the son of David. He will be called the son of God. And then the angel, probably the same one, goes to her betrothed husband, Joseph. And he says, I'm going to give you the name. You will call him Jesus. For he shall save my people. Not from the Romans, not from the Babylonians, not from the Persians, not from the Assyrians, not from the Egyptians. Others had done that stuff. But none of them have been able to save a single person from their own sin. No one had been able to break down that wall that was placed there by our first parents. This king, 
this prophet, this priest is going to be different. He is going to save them from their sins. And so this child grows up. He grows in wisdom. He grows in stature. And then he begins at ministry, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he begins to, he begins to perform miracles, mighty works. And you look at these like, maybe that's the good news. But it's not the good news. Those miracles weren't the good news. Let me show you. Early in Jesus' ministry, you have the story of Jesus. He's become very popular. He spends most of his time trying to actually run away from people just because he needs a little break. He runs into this house. He's sitting there. People are clamoring at the doors, trying to get in. And these four men just in desperation climb up on the roof and tear the roof off the house he's staying in and lower a man who is paralyzed down and they place him at Jesus' feet. And Jesus see him, sees him because he's not seeing with the eyes that we see. We, we look at that man, we're like, man, how bad must it be to not have legs, to not be able to move, to not be able to walk, not be able to, to play with your kids. How awful must that be? That's not what Jesus sees. He looks past the legs and he sees a man's poor spiritual condition. He sees what he really needs to be saved from, the wrath of God for his sins. And he looks up on him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And people hear that and they begin to freak out. They say, who does this guy think he is? No one can forgive sins but God. But then Jesus turns to them and he says, what is easier for man to do? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise, pick up your bed and go home? And it's a trick question. Because for man, neither one of those things are possible. I can say that your sins are forgiven. I cannot forgive your sins. I promise you if I could, boy, the, the walls would be bursting with Christians flooding in here, because I would just go to Kroger and just start saying, sins forgiven, sins forgiven, sins forgiven. That is not as much as I would love it to work like that way. It doesn't. It doesn't. I do not have that authority. I do not have that power. But then Jesus turns to them, and again he says, but so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive the sins of men he turns his attention away from the Pharisees, back on the crippled man. He said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There's the purpose of those miracles. Those miracles were no different than the prophets and the psalmist before them, who just pointed to what the good news was actually going to be. That the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And how did he purchase that authority to forgive sins? Where did it come from? It's for the reason that he became flesh in the first place. That he might become flesh, being found in human form. That he might become obedient unto the point of death. This is what Jesus tried to beat into the heads of his disciples. There in the last about third of his ministry, Almost all the time as you're walking down the road, he'll stop in the middle of it, turn to his disciples and say, I'm going to Jerusalem that I might be given over to the Sanhedrin, that I might suffer and that I might die and on the third day rise again from the dead. 
That was the mission that his father who sent him gave him. That is the purpose for which he was born. He was born that he might die. And that is the gospel. The gospel is not something that you did. It's not something that Adam did. It's not something that Abraham did. It's not something that David did. Moses did. Isaiah did. Paul did. Peter did. It is what Christ did. The gospel is not an it. The gospel is a he. The gospel is Christ. What is the gospel? It is that all the blessings of God and all of his benefits and our communion with him are not earned by us, but are promised and provided to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The miracles of Christ bear witness to this fact just as the prophets bore witness to it. But it was his life and his blood that is the gospel. And it is astonishing how many people do not know this. I had a conversation with a woman. I won't go into detail about who she was. It was several years ago. But let's suffice it to say, she had grown up in a context and was living in a context where if there was anybody on earth who should know what the gospel is, it would have been this woman. And we're having a conversation about the offensiveness of the gospel. And in the middle of it, she said, yeah, what's so offensive about do not murder? There's a lot offensive about do not murder. Sure, if all I need to do to be reconciled with God is not kill somebody, then I'm doing pretty good. But that is such a small and naive understanding of what the law actually is. That condemns me. Because obeying the commandment is not simply not killing somebody, but it's loving my neighbor as myself always, not wishing any ill upon them, not hating them in my heart. Because the second I do, what did Moses say in Deuteronomy? All the curses written on this book are upon my head. That scary, sword-vomiting Jesus that you see in the book of Revelation, if all I have is my attempts at obeying the law, that is coming for me. I'm not behind him coming with him. He is coming for me. That's not good news. The good news is that that scary sword came for Christ instead of me. There's a Christmas hymn, Mary, did you know? I'm not sure how I feel about the, the, the whole song in general, but it always makes me think. I got to love my children. I want good things to happen to my children. But I can only imagine what was going through Mary's head as she's there at the foot of the cross and she is seeing her son bruised, bloodied, beaten, hanging naked on a cross as the knife of God's wrath is being put to his throat. I could only imagine what that would be like, how heartbreaking that would be. But that's what was coming for her, for what was coming for him. And that's what was coming for her until he took it upon himself. If any of us are going to be right with God, it's going to be by the work of Christ. I want to give you two categories, very briefly. When you think about the work of Christ, two things that he did. First of all, his active obedience. See, here's the thing. I think this is the one that people probably forget about the most. If all we had was forgiveness, we're all zeros. God requires infinitely more than zero. He requires us to be the perfect reflection of his 
being and of his character. So where does that come from? Is it the works that we do after we've believed? No. It is the act of obedience to Christ. It was his fulfillment of the law and all of his demands perfectly and perpetually as our substitute. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him, in him, we might become the very righteousness of God. I think that's what Paul is saying in verse 17 here, when he says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. I think that's what he is saying. Do you want to find the righteousness by which you can be accounted righteous in the sight of God? Don't look here. Don't look at your past. Look 2,000 years into the past and find Christ. That is where you will find it. That is the act of obedience of Christ. The second one, and this is probably the one that you're more familiar with, is passive obedience. We call it passive because here he is receiving something. This isn't something that he's producing. It is something that he is receiving. What is he receiving? The wrath of God for sin. Upon the cross, I don't know how long it was, but for a time, the sin of every Christian, every believer who has ever walked the earth became Christ. And he was forsaken. And he was accursed. Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. He became our curse. And that is the content of of the gospel that is your good news that all that god demands have been satisfied by christ alone and all of his benefits are freely poured out in christ alone christ alone christ alone christ alone that is the good news but what about the power of the gospel you say here's the thing our gospel is a story but other cultures, other religions, they have their stories too. What makes our story any different? What makes our story any different than a, le- than a legend? There in verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I'm not going to speak about this very long, but I do want to point out here that the, in the Greek, power, that is the, the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite from. But don't think of the power of God as being like a firecracker. As something that just kind of blows a hole in the earth. This is Paul grasping at words. This is omnipotent power. Omnipotence. What I was telling the children, the, the, the power that spoke creation into being is also spoken whenever we say two little words, Jesus saves. There is omnipotent power in that testimony. And then what does he say? It is the power of God unto salvation. What that is saying is that omnipotent creative power, the thrust of it, is placed behind that world word and is working all things together for our salvation. All things are working toward it. In our Wednesday night studies, we're going through the Heidelberg Catechism question one. When we pick that back up, look for that. All things must work together for my salvation. Well, why is that? Because omnipotent power is behind the words, Jesus saves. But how do we attain that? 
Because it's one thing to say, well, it's the power of God and salvation. The work of Christ is my salvation. But for it to be out there somewhere, how do I come into possession of it? Paul answers that in verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. First of all, what Paul is not saying is, he's not saying that your faith contains in it some virtue or merit that makes you worth saving, makes you worth having eternal life. That's not what he's saying at all. Faith is merely the instrument. It is the thing that we have that lays hold to the merit and righteousness and obedience of Christ. Faith is saying, I give up. I give up and I lean fully into what Christ has done and I believe that it is sufficient. This is this boggles the mind that omnipotent power can be consumed into two little words, Jesus saves, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we attain that omnipotence through two little words, I believe. And that is it. It is by grace grace, demerited favor that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. How do you know sovereign, omnipotent power has worked through you? Have you said, I believe lately? Is it written upon your heart? There it is. You see how quiet and small it is? Like I was telling the kids, when you think of power, you think of something well, dynamite, big, strong, but the power of God is shown forth most brilliantly in weakness, the weakness of his son and the weakness of those who receive the work of his son. How do you come in possession of omnipotent, salvific power? Say, I believe. And before you start thinking, you know, I really hope there's some unbelievers here who are hearing this for the first time. Let me draw your attention to something else that Paul says there. He says that it is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. You know what that means? That means that faith consumes every moment of the Christian life from the beginning all the way to the end. No matter how Christ-like you become, you would never become so Christ-like that you do not require Christ. When you will be on your deathbed, you will need the gospel no less than you did the moment you first believed. It it consumes the whole of the Christian life. So what do you do? Follow the advice of Martin Luther, who had to remind himself of the gospel every day because he forgot the gospel every day attain to the ordinary means of grace. And what is the grace of God? It looks like Jesus. His blood-soaked hands, his blood-soaked side, his blood-soaked feet. That is the good news. There was your curse. And in his life, there was your life. That is the good news. And that is what the object, the content of our faith Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much for your word. Not just the word. 
of your wall with a word of your magnificent grace. O Father, who among us would send our own Son into the world to bear the penalty of the wicked? Yet that is exactly what you have done. So, Father, give us a spirit of immense and infinite gratitude. Forgive us when, it, when we aren't grateful, for we are weak. But, Father, you are strong. Work the power of your salvation, work the power of your gospel in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.